know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Basketball. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are grateful to have the opportunity to have Professor Powell on to discuss power sharing in Congress in the context of the new Biden administration. We will ask Professor Powell for her take on the current efforts to pass a COVID relief bill, the pending impeachment trial of Donald Trump, and the splinters in the Republican Party across both houses of Congress that may make policymaking more challenging in the coming months or even year. First things first, thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Powell. Thanks so much for having me. Before we talk about anything else, I think it would be a really great idea to immediately just get your take on what the lay of the congressional land is. Democrats have entered into the executive office with the House and the Senate, you know, by pretty slim margins, but still majorities in both. How have you been thinking about it specifically? And this like power sharing agreement also that the Senate has created? Well, I always think of this when one party has control of the branches, but not a super majority in the Senate, they have a narrow margin, less than 60 votes. I always think of that as the semblance of unified government or the appearance of unified government, but they don't actually have control over what happens in the Senate. This is one of those quirks of the sort of American process where the rules of the Senate are you need for most things and these don't go back to the Constitution and we can talk about the complicated history of the filibuster, but if right now, unless you have 60 votes in the Senate, you really don't have control over that chamber. And so I think the Democrats are gonna be in a pretty difficult position where people are gonna expect them to get, it, get things done because they do theoretically have control over all three branches of government. But in practice, they really can't make things happen in the Senate unless they get cooperation of not just a few senators, 10 senators. So it's not just needing to peel off the moderates, but getting into some pretty conservative folks as well to bring them on board with policy. So the Democrats are going to be in a very difficult position going forward. If we could just get you to elaborate on that a little bit. First, just maybe for some of our listeners who might not be familiar, could you just give us a brief explanation of the filibuster and how that interacts with the fact that even though the Democrats have this slim majority, they might not be such a policy-making force with the slim majority they have, and also maybe how that might mean a little bit of power sharing going forward and what you think that relationship might look like. Yeah, so the the Senate under its current rules, which of course are subject to change, and that's a very complicated story, but under its current rules, almost everything in the Senate requires 60 votes in order to end debate and bring something up for a vote. So when we're talking about filibustering, we're talking about sort of the ability to not end debate, the ability to sort of drag things out so that something can't really move forward. And so with the exception of confirmations of either judges or executive branch officers, or this one other policy, which is sort of a once a year opportunity to reconcile the budget, everything else requires 60 votes. Now, those things I mentioned require just a bare majority. So the Democrats have 50 senators, the Republicans have 50 senators, and then the vice president, in this case, Vice President Harris, can cast a tie-breaking vote anytime there's a tie in the Senate. So the Democrats can sort of control 
some things, those things, but that's a very limited set of the truth of the full scope of policymaking that the Senate could do. And we should talk in a minute about this power sharing agreement that they haven't even technically taken control of the Senate now, which is extremely unusual and really unprecedented to take so many weeks after the start of a new Congress to agree to an organizing re- resolution and a new sort of power structure in the Senate. Before we talk about that power sharing agreement, can you just give us or the, the listeners really a quick overview maybe of the difference between the House and the Senate in that even though the Democrats in the House have a pretty slim majority as well, they can still control vast amounts of power in the House because of the different rules? Yeah, so this actually goes into some of the like really interesting differences between the two chambers. So the Constitution allows the two chambers to set their own rules about how they're going to function and operate. And so initially, if we go back to the you know, founding of the Republic, the two chambers had very similar rules. You could essentially filibuster, do all sorts of things in both chambers. But very quickly, the House is so much larger, that became unwieldy and ridiculous. You can't let everybody talk endlessly, and you have to be able to structure things. And so because of the, the larger size of the House, the House over time developed these rules that give the majority party a lot of control over what happens on the floor to control the agenda, to sort of set what happens. And so the Senate went down just a very different path. They were so much smaller. They wanted to preserve the individual power that each senator has. And so that's how we ended up with this Senate that where the sort of rules really favor each senator getting to do stuff and delay and talk about things that makes it really difficult for sort of a bare majority of senators to get anything done. And so it's true, the Senate, the House is a very, Democrats in the House have a very slim majority, which could make things difficult because, you know, there's a range of viewpoints in the Democratic caucus and they can't afford to lose many House members on any vote. And that's tough. You've got to bring along very liberal progressives on the on some issue. And you've also got to bring along some pretty moderate conservative Democrats at the same time. So it's not as if Speaker Pelosi is going to have an easy job of things, getting her entire caucus on board. But the rules of the chamber make it much easier for her to structure things in terms of bringing things up for a vote, moving things along. Whereas the Senate, you know, the Democrats in the Senate won't even be able to bring things up for a vote unless they can get 60 60 senators, which basically means 10 Republicans on board, which is going to be very difficult. To kind of summarize, then, it seems like because of this institution of the filibuster, the Democrats, because some sort of filibuster doesn't exist in the House with a majority, can easily push through their, or not maybe easily, but at least have an easier time pushing through their agenda in the House versus in the Senate, where to close debate, they're at least going to have to get about 10 Republicans to come along. But as you mentioned, the rules of these chambers have changed over time including to the point where there is no longer a filibuster in the House. So my question is, how would the process of removing the filibuster from the Senate work? And do you think the Democrats would want to do that in order to push more of their agenda through without having to resort to using budget reconciliation? Yeah, so we've seen the rules regarding a filibuster change in the Senate dramatically over time. So it used to be, if we go back many, many decades, the Senate actually required two thirds, so 67 votes to actually end debate and move things forward. And they had gridlock issues there. And so they lowered the threshold. And that's how we ended up with three fifths or the 60 votes now that we have. 
So there are lots of different ways they could change the filibuster rule in terms of maybe they could lower the threshold to a simple majority, they could lower it to 55 votes, or they could do what they've done in the recent past, which is change the type of legislation that's subject to a filibuster. So, you know, several years ago, we saw them change things so that now you can do the uh, confirmations, um, judicial confirmations, Supreme Court confirmations, executive branch nominees like the Secretary of State and so forth. They, those all used to be subject to a filibuster and they changed that so it's all a simple majority. And the way they did that, which is the sort of easiest way they could change the rules going forward, would be to essentially reinterpret the precedent. So all that would happen is there'd be a, an appeal to the chair to about whether some bit of legislation is subject to the, the filibuster and a bare majority of senators could agree to sort of change or uphold the ruling of the chair. So essentially you could use that ruling of the chair approach via a bare majority to change what type of legislation is subject to a filibuster. And maybe you're going to say that anything that has to do with healthcare policy, because we're in a, like, is no longer subject to a filibuster. You you could change it in any way you wanted in terms of the scope, or you could say nothing is any longer subject. You could sort of fully change the how you interpret the precedent. And so that would be one sort of easy way you could do it. Now the big catch there is you'd have to have every single Democratic senator on board plus Vice President Harris to go along with that. And right now, it doesn't seem like the Democrats have the votes in their caucus. So we have conservative, moderate to conservative leaning senators like Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia, Senator Kristen Sinema from Arizona. They're some of the more prominent examples of folks who have said that they don't think they would go along with filibuster reform. And so at least right now, until those two senators change their mind, even if Schumer and the Democrats want to change the filibuster rule, there's nothing they can do. And they can't push people like Joe Man Senator Manchin very hard because the really scary thing for the Democrats is if any senator switches parties, which happened the last time we had exact this exact bare majority, someone switched from the switch parties, which then they would lose control of the chamber entirely. So it's all well and good for Democrats to get really upset and mad at senators like Joe Manchin, who are sort of stopping their ability to get anything done because they want to agree to a filibuster reform, but they, they desperately need his vote to even hold control of the chamber at all. Absolutely. And this ties into the Senate power sharing agreement that we were talking about earlier. The Republicans were not signing it yet because they hadn't gotten the guarantee, but then Mitch McConnell indicated that he might because of Senators Cinema and Manchin. What is the current state of that agreement now? And what were some of the consequences of that agreement not being in place? Like in terms of, I know the committee leadership has not switched over yet. So this is one of the really bizarre rules about the, of the Senate is because essentially you know, two thirds of the Senate continue to be in office. They're not reelected in any given year, unlike the House where everybody's up for reelection. So in the House, everybody's up for reelection every two years. The rules start over and nobody, there's no sort of leadership structure that starts over in the new Congress in the House. The first thing they have to do is decide who the leaders are, going to, are and what the rules are going to be. And they adopt those two things in basically the first two votes. A Senate is different because two thirds of the members continue to serve. The rules never cease to go into a never cease operation. And so technically, the old rules and the old leadership, the old committee leaders and so forth, are still in place in the new Congress. Now, 
typically what happens is the first thing that happens in the Senate is there's an organizing resolution that has the new rules and the new leadership and everyone goes along with votes on it. And that is sort of settled in the weeks going into the new Congress. And then the vote happens on the first couple of days. Well, this time around, Senator McConnell didn't want to do that. So typically what happens, or I should say the last time we had an evenly divided Senate, what happened, the sort of power sharing agreement that they agreed to was that the party that had the sort of bare majority cast by the vice president would get control of the committee chairmanship. And then the two parties would evenly split the budgets and the staff size and sort of all the other perks of majority status where it would be sort of evenly split between the two parties. This time around, Senator McConnell said that deal, which is a pretty good deal for the minority because technically the majority could probably force something through if they really wanted to, said that wasn't good enough, that in addition to all those things, he wants the promise that they won't change the filibuster rules this Congress. Schumer didn't want to grant them that promise because he wants to keep that in his back pocket, depending on what sort of obstruction delay the Republicans presented. But, and so it looks like we were sort of at an impasse, although, you know, Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema basically said that they weren't going to go along with changing the filibuster. And so it looks like this was sort of moot and it looks like they had all sort of agreed to things and we were going to, there was an agreement on the organizing resolution and we could sort of all move on with our lives and the Democrats could take control of the committee chairmanships, which they still don't have, you know, a couple of weeks into the new Congress. However, that was an agreement sort of in principle. And as you know, in Congress, until the votes are cast, this is always like you know, an agreement in principle. You never want to really count those chickens. So as of this recording, we that still hasn't happened. Now, part one complication is you need every single Democratic senator there and present. And, you know, between COVID exposures and quarantining and, you know, there was a senator who fell ill last week, getting everybody there on the same day is a little complicated. But my understanding is there's, you know, reports that essentially Schumer and McConnell are still hammering out some nuances of the power sharing agreement, but that no one will comment on exactly what those nuances are. So there's an expectation that'll be signed later today, but that's also been the expectation for the last week. So we shall see. I think the difficult thing for McConnell is he can't really, I think it's inadvisable for him to push this too far because at a certain point, those moderate Democrats who have said they won't go along with changing the filibuster are going to get really fed up, right? Because right now the Republicans still have those committee chairmanships. So someone like Joe Manchin, for example, is being deprived of the committee chairmanship he should rightfully have because of McConnell's delay. So I think McConnell's playing a very dangerous game here, potentially pushing this a little bit too far. The Democrats are pretty annoyed right now because this is hurting the confirmation of Biden's nominee. So you know, I mentioned one of the things that areas that's exempt from the filibuster are confirming executive branch nominations. So all of Biden's you know, cabinet nominees and others, they, those should be fairly easy confirmations if all Democrats are on board with supporting uh, the candidate. Well, we've seen now that um, the Republicans and the Judiciary Committee, which Lindsey Graham chairs, well, chaired in the old Congress and is still in control of, is refusing to hold confirmation hearings. Uh, for Biden's nominee, Merrick Garland, to become attorney general. And so the Democrats are getting really annoyed by this sort of continued obstruction and delay. And so this has sort of been a like a little bit of a 
you know, it, it was kind of annoying them for a while. And now this is sort of really getting to be the rubber hits the road. We're getting far enough into the new Congress. They want to start getting stuff done. And they need these nominees to actually get into their positions to do the business of governing and get things rolling. We've had a really slow, slow transition process. Indeed. And I, I think that this really, really speaks to just how big of an issue this filibuster is, because even before Congress has really started its job of governing, this topic is already kind of mucking up the gears and, I mean, almost quite literally bringing it to a grinding halt. So the question I want to ask based off of that is, what difference would it make for the Biden administration and the Democrats in general in terms of pursuing their policy agenda if the Senate was operating under the filibuster versus wasn't operating under the filibuster? Or maybe in other words, if we expect Congress to be controlled by Democrats, but also still having the filibuster in place, what can we maybe expect the Democrats to still achieve policy-wise? So this is going to be tough in terms of the difference here. Now, theoretically, if they remove the filibuster and go to a simple majority vote, they could theoretically get lots of things done in the Biden agenda if they can get the more conservative Democratic senators on board. I think it's not trivial to craft policy that will placate both the sort of pretty pretty liberal progressive types like Bernie Sanders on the one hand and the more conservative Joe Manchin types on the other hand. You know, in um, past years, we've seen, you know, Bernie Sanders refuse to vote for legislation sometimes because it's not progressive enough and he'll vote against it, which means then the Democrats have to go and get some more conservative votes to vote with them. And so things aren't, wouldn't be easy for the Democrats to get things done even if they move to a simple majority rule, but it gets a lot easier. Right now, given the filibuster and the sort of existing structure in Congress, you know, they can confirm Biden's nominees, assuming no Democrats object to them. And so they have a pretty uh, decent control there. They can conserve judicial, uh, confirm judicial appointments, and that's a big deal. They can, you know, do some budget stuff with this reconciliation um, process that only requires a majority vote. Other than that, they're going to have to find a lot of common ground with Republicans. And so one can think about, you know, potentially some forms of COVID relief. Maybe they can find common ground there. You know, maybe some more neutral issues, things like the sort of common joke from the last Congress was that, you know, next week was always going to be transportation infrastructure week because surely that was an agreement where both parties could come together on bridges and roads and that sort of stuff. Maybe some criminal justice reform is an area where some Republicans have been interested in some forms of criminal justice reform. So one can think about some areas of agreement between the two parties, but it's pretty difficult for them to do much beyond those things, at least legislatively. They can hold lots of hearings. There's other things they can do with the majority power, but they're not going to be passing a ton of legislation, I think. We've been we haven't talked yet about the impeachment trial that is about to happen in the Senate. Is there anything that you are seeing, you know, that is not being reported upon by the masses? Um, you know, because it, it looks like the president may escape conviction, at least in my eyes. I don't know. What are you thinking about the impeachment trial in the Senate? I mean, it's a really serious situation. I mean, what happened on January 6th, the insurrection at the Capitol, the deaths of so many, which could easily have been 
many more combined with the sort of, you know, refusal to concede on the election and the allegations of election fraud. I mean, those are incredibly serious uh, crimes isn't the right word because we're not really talking about criminal liability when you're talking about impeachment, but incredibly serious sort of crimes against democracy, against the Republic, against Congress in many ways. You know, they easily could have been the victims of all of this. And I think we're still seeing some of the fallout that they're experiencing from this, you know, in terms of staffers and others experiencing PTSD. And so this is a really serious situation. You know, early on, it looked like some senators were inclined to take this pretty seriously. And even Senator McConnell talked about, sort of floated the idea of potentially being open to it. But at least right now, it doesn't look like the Democrats are going to come even close to getting the votes from the Republican senators to to convict the president. And, you know, what's interesting is a lot of the Republicans aren't necessarily defending the president's actions on the substance. They seem to be sort of trying to get him off on a technicality, you know, that he's no longer in office. This is moot. Is this even appropriate if a president's no longer out? That seems to be the direction of the defense that that they're going in. You know, I think most constitutional legal scholars, you know, strongly disagree with with that analysis. But at least right now, it doesn't seem like there are going to be the the votes there to remove and you know bar him from future office, which is really the penalty that we're talking about. We're sort of talking about this both as a symbolic statement and also as sort of potentially to bar him from running for for future elected office. But you know, right right now, you know, it's these are such serious issues and it's hard to imagine, you know, what an impeachable offense is if if not for allegations of this substance. And this is an area that's really unusual where these senators were all there, right? They saw this up front. You know, usually with these sorts of things, there's a much more tenuous relationship to, to the facts. Things are much less clear. It's really hard to know what really happened. But this is a situation where the senators have much more firsthand knowledge of the facts than we've really ever seen in terms of an impeachment and conviction situation. So, uh, you know, it's it's really awful to see play out. But I, at this point, I sort of expect a relatively quick trial and a vote not to convict. But, you know, things change very quickly in American politics, as we've seen. And so it's really hard to predict, you know, what new facts or other things might come out that could change folks, change folks' minds. And to ask a quick follow-up on that, contrary to the belief of many of our listeners, Adam and I will occasionally have conversations that we don't record. And one thing that we were talking about one time is another kind of argument that the Republican Party is making against impeachment, and that it undermines Biden's call for unity. What's your take on that argument? Do you think that either the remo- that the removal of Donald Trump would undermine unity as the Republicans claim? Or do you think that unity maybe requires some form of accountability or justice? Well, in some sense, I don't really think Biden has anything to do with this, right? This is a, you know, the president was impeached. This trial is then sort of held in the Senate. Biden has no, President Biden has no role in this process. This isn't up to him in in, in either regard, either to convict or to uh, acquit. And so he, he just, He's sort of staying out of this, which I think is is a wise, you know, political play. I think accountability and sort of having facts and setting these precedents and sort of identifying what happened and you know adjudicating responsibility. I think it's tough to move forward and have agreement and trust between these senators and sort of move 
forward with the process without recognizing what happened and sort of talking about moving forward. And you know, again, if these crimes don't merit impeachment and removal, it's, it's difficult to understand sort of what what would one what would. So I'm pretty skeptical of the sort of claims that this would harm unity. I think there's already pretty hard feelings on either side, and I don't think conviction removal would change things in, in either direction in terms of hard to sides. But also I think, you know, that's, this isn't a criminal process, but if we think about the analogy to a criminal process, we don't, you know, not convict somebody because it would harm unity between the sides. I mean, it just, it's, it's not the way the process works. If someone does something wrong, you have to pay the price and, you know, removal from office or barring from future high office and the stigma of, you know, being impeached and removed. Those are the penalties. And, if not enough senators want to remove, they're well within their rights. Impeachment is and removal is a political standard, not a legal standard. And so it really is up to their discretion for what's appropriate in terms of a punishment in this case. But I'm not really moved by either the unity arguments or the sort of you know procedural arguments that he's no longer in office. It doesn't apply, which, again, I, I don't think it, many constitutional scholars really agree with. And you mentioned kind of these hard feelings on each side, which I think, you know, anyone paying even just a, a, a glimpse of attention to, to, to politics would agree. But these hard feelings, of course, also exist within Congress itself and between the two parties. Because there's this incredible, I feel, toxicity within the current Congress, especially because, you know, on one side, especially uh, on the Republican side, you as well have certain members like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who uh, is a QAnon supporter and also believes that the Stoneman Douglas shooting was a false flag. Uh, you have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, telling Ted Cruz on Twitter that uh, he tried to have her murdered by uh, taking a role in stoking the insurrection at the Capitol. It just seems like an incredibly divisive time in the in the legislature right now and even a time when it seems like individual members of congress have personal spats with one another over political issues as a congressional scholar how do you think that this is going to affect actual policy making or this body's ability to govern i certainly don't think it bodes well it's hard to imagine you know having agreements or you know finding compromise with folks who you view so negatively, I mean, who really think are risking your lives or doing really other, you know, pretty beyond the pale things. I mean, this is a, an escalated version of a larger trend that congressional scholars have been worried about for about the last 20 years. You know, about 15 years ago, two political scientists, sort of longtime DC advisors, Ornstein and Mann, wrote this book about Congress, The Broken Branch, and they talked about how, you know, Congress. There was no comedy in Congress. I don't mean comedy as in like haha SNL comedy. I mean comedy as in people getting along and being civil and just sort of having conversations with people. Those things that that used to exist. And you know, then you know, five or ten years later, they wrote a book that it's even worse than it looks about how Congress had sort of further deteriorated from the time they initially wrote that book. And now we're at a level that you know is hard to recognize. I mean. Congress scholars like to look back at the sort of the golden days of the textbook Congress of the sort of 50s and 60s when the members all used to like 
drink scotch together and go smoke cigars on the weekends. And like they all lived in DC and spent a lot of time together. And yes, they would fight amongst each amongst each other on, and sort of go after each other on political grounds, but they were sort of all friends behind closed doors. And there were lots of problems with those days among other things, racism and sexism and lots of lack of representation and lots of issues. I'm not trying to those Congresses, but they did sort of have some basic agreement that it made it easier to cut deals in some things. You know, scholars try to explain why that's gone away. You know, part of it's because members spend very little time in DC now. You know, they're there for a couple of days in the middle of the week and then they jet home to their districts to spend time with their constituents and fundraise and they jet back. And so they're not really getting to know each other across you know, party lines the way that they used to. But the other thing that's really changed since that time is, you know, now it feels like basically every election cycle control the chambers at stake, right? Are they going to keep their majority or are they going to lose their majority? And that just didn't used to be the case. You know, if we go back, you know, prior to the 1990s, the Democrats had control of Congress for like four years, right? There just wasn't a lot of ambiguity or mystery. So there wasn't really a need to sort of do this, you know, fight to the death sort of mentality about hard political gamesmanship. Whereas now it feels like you've got to try to score every point. You've got to do every possible thing because that might be to make the difference. And I think that leads to this sort of accelerated competition and obstruction and just pushing the rules to their limit to try to get every, eke out every last thing that you can. And so this sort of good old days where you were, you know, all buddies behind the scenes, it just seems like an ancient relic. And so there are lots of you know, congressional scholars who have ideas about how to reform Congress. And there's a big, you know, push to sort of the modernization committee to try to talk about various reforms, to bring expertise back to Congress, to bring relationships back between the two chambers. And, you know, hopefully some of those changes will, will be adopted. But right now it feels like we're pretty far from those changes. So continuing this kind of talk about some divisive members of Congress, you know, there is precedent for expulsion and there's precedent for punishment of members. I read an article on CNN within the last like 24 hours of, uh, you know, the House Democrats are moving to strip Marjorie Taylor Greene of her committee assignments in recent days after, of course, very controversial things about Marjorie Taylor Greene's past and what she said in the past have come to light. What is your take on this situation of, you know, like a minority party member is stepping very far out of line and the majority party is in control, you know, like, what is your take on this situation? It's a difficult situation. I think, you know, we've certainly have much precedent where, you know, the parties can do this. You can strip people of committee chairmanships, you could technically expel them, etc. We've seen in recent years, more example of the stripping people of committee seats. That's a pretty serious step. Members, you know, lose a lot of their potential influence when they lose their committee seats. So it's sort of only taken as sort of one of the most dire forms of punishment. When we've seen it, examples of it in recent years, it's usually a party policing their own members. And so it would be different in this case, would this would be the Democrats sort of policing a, a Republican party member. And so yes, they have the power to do it, but it would sort of violate a norm in some sense. Now, whether this is a serious case worth violating norm, those are of course difficult questions. I think the concern is that you know, you do this now, and then the next time the Republicans take control of the House, they have, there's, I'm sure, something they'll object to about some progressive Democrat, and will they use that to then, you know, pun- punish some progressive Democrats? So does this set you down the slope of, you know, stripping away the minority seat assignments? 
and sort of does it set you down that path? Now we've already gone, there's so many different norms being broken and have been broken over the last few years that you know I'm not trying to in any way argue that this one is the sacred one and everything else should be broken. But that's the counter argument, I think, of why we're not necessarily sure whether the Democrats are going to do this. I think the Democrats would really like the Republicans to do this themselves, to sort of police their own. And so part of this is sort of a trying to encourage the Republicans to do this. Now that I think the flip side is, I think one concern of the Democrats doing this, in addition to, to sort of the precedent it sets, is that this make Representative Green a, a celebrity in some way, right? Does this sort of play into her concerns about cancel culture? Does she get to then go to the Republican base and talk about how she's targeted? So does this in some way elevate her by singling her out this way? And so you know, the flip side argument would be, you know, is it better to just keep her in that seat and do what they're doing now, which is try to tie whatever things she says to the to all Republicans. And so the DCCC has taken out ads, trying to show like highlight remarks that she's made in order to sort of tag the sort of general Republican party with, with those views and with that label. And so again, there are different ways to go about it. Those are, I think, the strategic considerations they're, they're considering. How likely do you think that is where the Republican Party is going to take steps to police Green and maybe a couple of their other more, say, out there or conspiratorial minded members? How likely do you think it actually is that, say, senators that uh, like maybe Mitt Romney or even party leadership like M- Mitch McConnell are going to be to go after her? Or do you think that these kind of newer, more Trumpism-minded Republicans have come to dominate the party now? Well, I don't see a lot of appetite among the House leadership for policing any of those members. You know, McConnell and Romney are in the Senate. I think they certainly don't appreciate her remarks and you know are pretty critical of her but they have no authority there and from what we've seen of Kevin McCarthy is you know we certainly haven't seen much pushback with him from him or much support and you know he's in a sort of uh, I think a lot of his caucus maybe doesn't share those views but is much friendlier to those views than a lot of the senators and so I'm not very optimistic. The Democrats may want him to police his own, but it doesn't look like that. Now, you know, there's an argument that, you know, this is bad for the party because, you know, if, you know, moderate voters, you know, suburban voters, the voters that President Trump lost last time around could be further alienated by these sort of extreme voices in the party. So that's not that there's no cost to policing them, but it seems so far they've been more concerned with the Dryden Trumpist voices who strongly support, if not share those views. And so they haven't seemed willing to take on that wing of the party thus far. We've been talking a lot about this democratically elected Congress, but there are scholars and there are people out there saying that the way by which the rules are and the way by which some of the ways we govern is arcane and out of touch. Do you think that there is a pronounced need for reform in the way that Congress works and the rules of Congress? Or is this just a product of divided government in reference to like inaction and things like that? Part of this, of course, is, you know, our system is designed towards gridlock and to bias things towards the status quo. And that was sort of the checks and balances of the founders 
sort of created a system to try to tamp down the temporary passions and to sort of keep things sort of relatively more stable. But of course, the filibuster didn't come from them. The supermajority threshold didn't come from them. And so it's possible that, you know, the rules we've adopted over time have created a slightly more extreme system biased even further, further towards gridlock than the founders intended. So that part, I think, could be certainly could be changed if the Democrats can get the votes in the Senate to change those rules. The larger question of sort of inequality in the system is complicated. You know, the the way, you know, voters have sorted themselves into states and sort of how urban, rural and urban uh, localities line up with uh, party identification, you know, the structure of the Senate really biases things strongly, both the Senate and the Electoral College strongly in favor of Republicans sort of scattered out through these rural states and, you know, strongly biases things against sort of the majority of the people who don't have the votes because they're sort of, you know, concentrated so tightly in these other states. And so, you know, that's a level of inequality we didn't really expect to have happen and is, you know, arguably problematic. I think the difficult thing is that's a level of rule change that gets tough to do, right? You're starting to talk about needing constitutional amendments or changing, you know, voting rules and those things. I think you can make strong arguments that our current system isn't very fair from a democratic perspective to those voters who live in those more urban states. But I think the potential remedies are hard. I think you need, it's tough to pass those remedies without the help of the folks whose those rules currently advantage. So, you know, just a pragmatic level, I don't necessarily see how you get there in terms of the, the type of rule change that you would really need to fully change that system. To ask a, a quick follow-up on that to and to kind of maybe drill a little bit more down in into this, some of these pro-democracy ideas where, you know, just in encouraging the power of the individual vote are things like, as we've been talking about earlier, potentially removing the filibuster, but also in the more dramatic sense, maybe abolishing the Electoral College or statehood for Washington, D.C. or the option for Puerto Rico or a redistribution of representatives with relation to proportional representation in the Senate. You express a bit of pessimism regarding these options going forward, but do you think that there are any measures like this that encourage small d democracy in Congress that actually are feasible from a policymaking standard? Or do you think that none of these plans specifically have really any chance of being enacted? It's tough. It's really tough. I think some of them are more feasible than others. I think getting rid of things like the Electoral College, I think anything that requires a constitutional amendment gets really hard, just as a practical matter. You know, I think, you know, when you're talking about DC statehood or those sorts of things, to me, that seems slightly more feasible, just from a a threshold you have to overcome. And, you know, it has always, you know, I teach a Congress class here, and, you know, it's always amazing how many people are shocked by, you know, our Congress has a lot of non-voting delegates, right? So we have non-voting delegates representing the folks in D.C., representing folks in Puerto Rico and Guam and the Northern Marianas and Puerto Rico. Those are a lot of folks who, you know, are American citizens, you know, are part of this process, but aren't really represented in Congress. And that's always just felt awkward to talk about when you talk about 
sort of our, the structure of our system, sort of who's left out and who isn't included and why that is and how that's fair. So I think certainly strong arguments can be made that those would be sort of appropriate remedies to take should those territories and others want, you know, full representation in Congress. And so that, you know, those again, seem to me like slightly easier changes to make that sort of potentially rectifies an odd inequality in our existing system that's sort of difficult to defend on some democratic bases. But I guess I'm a, a little bit on the more pessimistic side for a bunch of these changes. It's just it's hard to see the political will to make changes of this magnitude happen. But, you know, we're in crazy political times and lots of things have happened that I haven't expected before. So that is not to say that, you know, I don't see these things happening in the future. I think, you know, people are really upset and fed up at the system. And I think, you know, part of that we've seen is, you know, support for pretty extreme candidates. But, you know, if that energy can be harnessed in favor of sort of further democratic reform, that's, you know, could be a way forward. You know, you could also see talking about reforms and sort of money and politics and other types of things that sort of could help level the playing field in lots of ways. So again, those are things that certainly could could potentially be changed moving forward. Thinking ahead, the conception that most people have is that the president's party loses seats in the Congress during a midterm. Is that necessarily the case with Biden? Or, you know, like, are there ways that you foresee that Democrats don't fall into the trap that normally happens to members of the president's party? So this is one of the strongest empirical regularities we have in American politics, that the president's party loses seats in the midterm and the first midterm of a two-term presidency is especially bad. So going into it, knowing nothing else about 2022, my expectation is the Democrats should brace themselves. But just because that's the way it's happened in the past doesn't necessarily mean that's going to happen now. So I can point you to one of the few examples of an exception to midterm loss, which was, you know, following 9-11, the congressional elections that followed about a year after that, the president's party picked up seats. So it's not to say that, you know, in a time of, you know, extreme national crisis, which I would certainly argue 9-11 was, we're in a very different extreme crisis now. But that's not to say that, you know, these extreme circumstances couldn't lend themselves to an unusual political outcome. You know, I think really what the Democrats need to think about, and which I think the Biden team is very well aware of, is that they're going to be judged by how they handle the pandemic and the economy. And that's why I think that's what their focus is on. And, you know, they certainly don't have full control over that. There's lots of variables in terms of new strains and other things that they certainly can't control all of. But, you know, if we're in a situation where the American people view that they've done a good job of getting out vaccines and maybe the economy has sort of returned to some semblance of normalcy and they've tried to help people through this dire economic crisis, you know, maybe that'll change. The real trick here is that, you know, often the president's party loses because, you know, their voters are, are satisfied, whereas the other party is really angry and upset that they lost control of government. So the real question is, can the Democrats get their voters who turned out in 2020 to show up again in 2022? right, the sort of marginal folks who don't always show up on election day. They're the ones who are going to make this difference. That's why the empirical regularity is the way it is. Usually they're satisfied and complacent or they no longer support what's going on. You know, if Democrats can continue to mobilize their base or 
not just their base, but the sort of marginal folks, the sort of suburban folks that the president had alienated and get them on board. Again, that, that's the, the potential difference maker here. What happens when President Trump is no longer on the ballot? You know, do, do those really Trump-ish Republicans continue to show up? Do the Democrats who are voting to sort of vote against Trump, do they, they continue to show up? Those are the folks who are going to sort of decide control of Congress in 2022. And we're starting to run up on time here. So before we run out, we, we want to ask you if there's anything else maybe we should have asked you. Is there anything in this conversation that we didn't talk about that you feel like our listeners need to hear or just anything else that you'd like to particularly share? I think the only thing we didn't talk about was, you know, one thing we had talked about talking about before things got so crazy in Congress was about, you know, Vice President Harris and the sort of historic nature of her election. And with everything else that's happened, we've sort of, not just this conversation, the American public has sort of ignored the groundbreaking nature of the first female VP. And, you know, that's an amazing change and something that, you know, certainly given lots of, you know, little girls hope around the world. So that's, you know, one, one big change going forward. The last thing that we like to ask people these days is, uh, what are you hopeful about, you know, in this new year, the new semester, new administration, new Congress? What are you hopeful about? I am hopeful about vaccines and the awesome work the scientists and doctors are doing so that we can all get back to in-person classes and all the wonderful things that we usually like to do. Well, Dr. Powell, thank you so much for joining us today. We do really, really appreciate your time. It's It's been wonderful hearing your insights, and we hope to have you back soon, hopefully to talk about a little bit more optimistic news, but always great to get your perspective. Thanks so much for having me, and I'll look forward to it with hopefully better news to talk about. <laughs> For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle and recorded remotely for now.